You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. So there's this guy named Jack, and Jack is on a hike. And he's just kind of not really paying attention to what he's doing, and he comes up really close to the edge of this cliff, and he loses his footing, and he slips, and he falls right off the cliff. And as he's falling, he reaches up, and he grabs, he just happens to grab a branch sticking out of the cliff, and he's hanging there by one arm. And he's yelling and screaming, help me, help me, and nobody's responding to Jack. He hangs there for a little bit, and he feels his arm getting weak and tired. He knows, trying to pull up, but he just can't get enough strength to get his leg up. He finally decides he's gonna cry out to God. God, help me, help me. There's a long, awkward pause. Finally, a voice from heaven comes. Jack, Jack, God, God, is that you? Yes, Jack, it's me. I've got you, Jack. Oh, God, thank you. Thank you so much. If you get me out of this, I promise I'll, I'll, I'll stop sinning. I'll give away 50% of my income. I'll serve every single week at my church. Would you just get me out of this? The voice came back. Jack, take a deep breath. We have time to deal with all of that. First, we have to get you out of this. Oh, yes, God, whatever you want, whatever you tell me to do, I'll do it. Okay, Jack, here's what I need you to do. Let go. Another long, awkward pause. Is there anybody else out there that can help me? (laughs) Okay, it's a silly little joke that makes a great point on today's message. Have you ever asked God for something and ended up with something different, totally different than what you had in mind? Has that ever happened to anybody else in the room? It's not just me, right? We had a joke when I was growing up. Do not ask Grammy, that's my mom, to pray for you. Because when she does, God does stuff. But it's never the way that you thought. My mom uh, texted me after the service, and um, she had offered to buy me Starbucks before church, and I didn't have time. And she's like, you don't get your Starbucks anymore now. Um, (laughs) But she joked back. She's like, no, 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 it's true. But she goes, I learned to be really specific. But even then, God doesn't always do what you ask. I remember there was this season where my dad's job was just miserable and my mom was praying and praying and praying that God would bring about a change in his job and he lost his job. And the next few years were miserable, painful. He was trying to find a job, what he was gonna do. He eventually decided to start his own business and now today he'll tell you it was the best thing he ever did and he wished he'd done it sooner. Now, that, don't walk away from that going, that was God's word for me today. I need to go start my own business. That is between you and your family and the Lord, Right? My point in that illustration is what felt painful in a moment turned out to be good later. But that's exactly what we want to get to today. We're kicking off a new series, but we're still in the book of Luke. But we're going to take the next handful of weeks or so. And as we walk through the book of Luke, we're going to study some very specific topics that the book is bringing out to us. That's why we titled this, In My Opinion, because every single one of these is a controversial topic that people have lots of opinions about. And you have the freedom at the end of these sermons to disagree with me if you want to be wrong. You are totally allowed. (laughs) Just kidding. But what I want to do with each of these topics, like what does God actually say about alcohol? And and today, what do we do with doubt in our faith? We're going to look at what does the Bible say about women serving in church leadership? 
And we're gonna talk about some hard, controversial things, where the text takes us, we're gonna go, we're never gonna avoid that, but we're gonna try to do our best in the 30 to 32 minutes that we have to walk you through what we believe the scriptures say and why, and just realize with all these topics, there's always more to say, there's always more scriptures to read, there's always more points to be made, that's why people write entire books on all of these, but we're gonna do our best to equip you with what God's word says. And so without any further ado, let's go ahead and open up to today's text. If you have a Bible, open up with us to Luke chapter seven. And uh, if you're visiting with us or you're new here, you may not know everything we are saying today has been built on months and months and months of walking through the book of Luke. And I'll do my best to summarize all that. But if you really want to get the whole story, you should go back and start listening in December. All right, Luke chapter seven, verse 18 says this. John's disciples told him about all these things. Calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord to ask, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Let's just fill in some blanks, okay? So real quick, the John being referred to here is John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. We talked about him, I can't remember now if it was January or February. He came onto the scene when we talked about it in late December as his uh, parents got pregnant miraculously later in life. It's that John. This isn't John who wrote the gospel book of John or one of the other Johns. This is crazy. It's like there's all these Marys, there's all these Johns. It gets confusing, but that's who we're talking about here. And John has a bunch of disciples, In fact, some of Jesus' disciples were John's disciples. And when John baptized Jesus and he looked at Jesus and said, here's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, some of his disciples left John and went to follow Jesus. But he still had disciples, people who followed him around. Now, you may not know John's story, but just to bring you up to speed, John was a prophet who came before Jesus. That'll all come up later in the text. And uh, he went around literally wearing camel hair for clothing and ate locust and honey for food. And we think that's really weird and gross. It is, but it was a sign that he was a prophet. And his message, his sermon was, prepare the way for the Lord. Everybody turn back to God, get your heart ready, because God is about to break forth and break through and do something awesome. So now what we find is John, and I'll give you a little bit more, like before the story here, but John is in prison. And his disciples are coming to check on him. And they're checking on them and they're testifying to John. Hey, we've heard Jesus is doing all these crazy, awesome things. And so now John is sending some of his disciples to go talk to Jesus and have a conversation. I'm in prison and and, and history says it's possible John was in prison for up to two years. We don't know exactly how long at this point, but even if he's 18 months in, a year in, it's been a long time. And he's just starting to doubt his faith. Are you really the one? I mean, I know I saw the Holy Spirit come down on you like a dove. I know I told everybody you're the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, but are you really the one? And he's just sending him back. Like, go ask him what he says. Verse 20. And when the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent to us to ask you, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Do you hear the doubt in there? Do you hear the, the questioning? John's situation has him wondering, what is Jesus's ultimate plan here? And I don't know where you are in your life. So you may not need this one today, but someday you might. So just tuck this little message away. And someday you might email me and say, hey, where was that message that you talked about John doubting Jesus? Because John the Baptist is a great man, a great man, perhaps the greatest man ever apart from Jesus. And yet he had doubts. And that tells me that it's okay when life is hard to at least have doubts and have questions. But what we wanna do is we wanna do what John does, which is go ask our questions and find out our answers from Jesus himself. 
Now let's talk about why this is so painful for John. If you go to, uh, I think it's Matthew 7 and Matthew 11, you're gonna get a lot more of the story, but here's where we get some of the context. So uh, what I wanna do in every sermon is I wanna teach you the Bible, and then I wanna have like this moment where we have to wrestle with Jesus from what the Bible tells us. So when you come in here today, a lot of times I'm trying to bring in all these other pieces of Bible study and say, okay, here's what's happening and here's why it's happening. I'm trying to like cover a lot of ground in a little space. And so anything I ever say that leaves you confused, I only ask for either you to follow up with an email or go to our Connect Hub or come next Sunday, you'll hear more. So what I wanted you to, to just to understand real quick is there are four gospel books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, the book we're in, and then the book of John. These first three are called the synoptic gospels. What that means is they are almost the same. You can overlay them over each other and they follow the same story, the same outline. In fact, scholars tell us that these three authors used each other's books when writing their own book. And then scholars, because they love to argue, they sit around and argue over who wrote what book first. And to me, it's completely irrelevant. I don't care. I remember being bored sitting through it in Bible college going, why does it even matter? But you should know that. John is over here. Um, he's just doing his own thing. And he's got this really, it's the coolest one of all the gospels written. He's just got all these cool little intricacies and things woven in because it's just amazingly written. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all tell the same stories with a little bit of details burst in and little things kind of throughout it to help paint the picture. So if you go to Matthew's telling of the same story, he gives you a little bit more detail as to what's happened. Take a look, Matthew chapter 11, verse two. He says this, when John, same story, when John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? So Matthew is the one who gave us this detail about he is in prison. You see that? Now, what's happening is those two years that he spent in prison, the reason he's in prison is because he takes off a guy named Herod. You ever heard of Herod? He's often referred to on the History Channel as Herod the Great. He is not referred that way at all in Scripture. I find it fascinating that the History Channel loves to refer to him that way because Herod built a lot of things. I think I'm saying this right. He was what's called a vassal king. I think I'm saying that word correctly. Vassal king is, is somebody who was put in place as a king. He led over Israel, but he was a king under a king. And the real king was Caesar. Rome. Rome was in captivity, or sorry, Rome had the Israelites in captivity. But yeah, as long as Herod played by their rules, paid their taxes, followed their laws, and didn't cause any problems for them, he could be a king underneath the king, if that makes sense. But Herod was not a good man. He was power hungry. Oh, if I were just to go through the different things that Herod did, I don't know why we call him Herod the Great. He was an evil, evil man. He did terrible, evil things. And John the Baptist, he was not afraid to call him out on that. In fact, one of the things is that, that Herod divorced his wife for literally no good reason. And this isn't one of our topics today, though the book of Luke will eventually take us there. The Bible says that God hates divorce. Doesn't mean he hates people who've been divorced. We see this over and over and over again when Jesus has a confrontation with a woman at a well and she's been divorced five times and she's currently in a relationship with a man who's not her husband and Jesus does nothing but show her love and mercy and grace. But it doesn't change the fact that God doesn't desire divorce. It's not his highest ideal. It's not his goal for marriage. And John the Baptist calls Herod out for that. But not just because Herod got a divorce, but then when he got a divorce, he started to pursue his brother's wife. It's like Jerry Seinfeld. If you ever thought the Bible was boring, it's because you weren't reading it right. And John the Baptist just calls him out. What, Herod gets mad, he puts him in jail. And through, I think it's in Matthew 7, it might be there in Matthew 11, through a series of circumstances, Matthew tells us the story that uh, Herod isn't really sure what to do 
with John the Baptist, but one day, this other lady, her name is Herodias. I mean, how consumed do you have to be if you're here to marry a woman named Herodias? But he, um, I know, right? It was a little funny. Anyway, so her daughter comes in and dances seductively, and Herod is so impressed with this whole thing. He's like, man, I'll give you anything you want. And she says, I want John the Baptist's head on a platter. And Herod's like, okay, done. So he has this prophet, this great man of God, literally beheaded, means your head is separated from your body. And uh, that's the end of John the Baptist's story. But that sets up the tension that we feel as the story is unfolding for us. See, everybody who ever read the book of Luke, everybody, everybody, they're reading after the fact. All of this has already happened to John the Baptist. So a lot of people in the first day when Luke wrote this, they already knew about John the Baptist's story. But for us, we have to go and put these pieces together so we can follow it. Because now we're somewhere in that prison sentence and John sees an end in sight and he's starting to wonder and doubt, where are you? Have I wasted my life on you? Is this ever gonna change? Am I getting out of here? If I'm going to die, if this is going to cost me my life, please tell me it's worth it. Do you hear the tension? Are you him or should we be waiting for someone else? Because remember, even John the Baptist, Peter, John, all of them, they were waiting for the Messiah to come as a king to overthrow Roman rule and reign. Well, if Jesus becomes king, what can he do with John the Baptist? Hey, let that guy out of prison. That's one of my guys. Are you him or should we be waiting? And Jesus responds, verse 21 of Luke 7. At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits and gave sight to many who were blind. So right there and then, John's two disciples show up. John's in prison. He's just wondering, Jesus, are you the one or do we need to wait for someone else? Jesus says, let me show you something. Like, I don't know, I've made a noise, but like... like the greatest showman. You're like, I don't know what he did, right? But if you weren't here the last couple weeks, the very last story before this is he raised a young man from the dead. And the story before that is he healed a Roman centurion's servant without even being there. He just said it and it was done. And these are the stories that are getting to John the Baptist when John sends his disciples. He's just like, hey, I just want you to, so you're not just hearing a rumor. I want you to see some things. Watch this. And whatever exactly he did, he healed some diseases, he cast out some spirits, he gave sight to the blind. And he's about to send them back and say, you tell John what you saw. And what's really powerful about that is in seasons when you're struggling to see the hand of God in your own life, look for it in the lives of others. And the reason that's so hard is because jealousy. Let's just be honest, right? You're going through something and you're praying and asking God to move and you see God responding to prayers and he's blessing and he's saying yes and all these other things over here. And if, if your flesh wins, then it's easy to get bitter and jealous and say, why not me? What's wrong with me? I have a friend who fasted for 40 days alongside another pastor. They were both about to plant churches. And my friend, I don't know this other pastor, my friend told me, he said, man, I literally had to go into counseling because when we both planted, my church never really grew past 120, 150 people. 
And this guy's church blew up to like tens of thousands of people. And he would get up on stage all the time and say, you know, the reason why our church grew is because God's favor is with me is because I fasted and prayed before we did this. And he's like, the what about me? And it became hard for my friend to look at the way that God was moving and blessing in my other friend's church. And he just, instead of looking at all the ways that God was moving and blessing in his context, because he wasn't doing it in the same way or the way that my friend was asking, he had a really hard time. Because you know in America, we all love bigger and better. Let's just be honest, pastors included. But one of the ways that we will carry ourselves with God through hard seasons is we will look at God's activity and remind ourselves, he is good. I know he's still active in the world. I see it. Even when I can't see it in my own context, in my own story, I can see it over here. And I will not let my flesh win the day. I will not let these doubts win the day. I see it and I know I can say with the psalmist that I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. I will trust and hang on to the hope. Yes, I will claim Romans 8.28 for myself that God is going to work all things together for the good of those who love him, even if, even if he doesn't do what I'm asking, when I'm asking, or how I'm asking. Take a look at 722. So Jesus replied to the messengers, go back, report to John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. In other words, so you don't miss this, go back and tell John everything you saw. In other words, yes. John, everything you've been wondering about is happening. I am the man. I'm the one. But the reason you may not understand, why is that so powerful? So if you were to go back and study what we call our Old Testament, so if you don't know this, there's 66 books in the Bible. Some of these are history books. Some of them are, are letters. Uh, it, they all have different meaning and purpose. But if you were to take those 66 books, there is 39 books in the Old Testament and then 27 books in the New Testament. Matthew begins the transition of the New Testament and goes to Revelation. Genesis to Malachi, at least in the versions we have out there, are where you would see your Old Testament. In the Old Testament, there are hundreds of prophecies that point to Jesus, hundreds of them. It's not the point of today's message specifically, but if you were just to go to one of those books, right, they're almost in the middle in the Old Testament, the book of Isaiah, and plop it out of there, you would find so many prophetic words about Jesus. Now, you don't know it until you read the New Testament, you go, you line them up, you go, oh, this is fulfilling this, this is fulfilling this. And for those of you who are curious, the book of Isaiah, plopped right out of the Old Testament there, was written seven to, seven to 800 years, let's call it, before Jesus arrives on the scene. And they happen with such specificity, so, so specific, that's what the word means, that when Jesus does them, you are left with a really difficult question. How in the world could Jesus do things <clears throat> that were predicted he would do seven to 800 years before he ever was even created and arrived on the scene? How was that possible unless God was writing the story? Now, I'm gonna show one verse. There are lots of verses in the book of Isaiah that Jesus just summarized and he compacted them into one. So he took multiple prophecies about the Messiah, put them into one. But let me just real quick look at 722, 722, and just get it in your head before I show you this one in Isaiah. Notice what he said. Go back and tell John, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and good news is proclaimed to the poor. 
Now, again, he took at least three or four prophecies and put them into one. Let me just show you one to compare, right? Isaiah chapter 35, verse five to six says this. Then he, sorry, then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. So we talk about when the Messiah comes, you'll be made right with God and you'll know it's him because these things will happen. The eyes of the blind will be open. Sound familiar? The ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Now, what's powerful about this is what Jesus is saying is when I, when the Messiah comes, right? This prophecy is about him. When the Messiah comes and does all of these things, what you will find is wasteland will come alive again. That's what this means. What is dead will be raised to life. What is dark and brown will turn green and lush because that's what Jesus is doing in our lives. And the reason I want to tell you this is there's this whole thing going on in the world today about miracles and, 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 and the spirit and gifts of the spirit. And someday we're gonna, we'll do a detailed thing on that, but it's not today. But I wanna give you one anchor as you're thinking through this and you watch videos, sometimes proclaiming things that are not of God, that are of God, they say are from God. And sometimes things are from God and you're doubting whether to believe it. But I wanna give you an anchor. Here's the anchor. Miracles on earth point us to the power and faith that we are to have in the miracle worker, and that's Jesus. Jesus is the miracle worker. And if I could give you a little handle, here's the handle. I want you to seek the face of God and not the hand of God. When you seek the face of God, you get a face-to-face relationship with him. What he chooses to do with his hands to bless or provide or bring good from evil, however he chooses to do that, let's invite him and ask him and seek his face to solve our problems and to help us, but to trust him because the end game is not what he does. The end game is to have a life-giving relationship with him. He is alive and well. Jesus, while not physically here on the earth in the way he was 2,000 years ago, is very much alive in heaven and reigning and ruling. We are his church, his body here on earth. He's very much active and present and wants a relationship with you still today. Yes. But the miracles of Jesus were to testify to Jesus. In fact, Jesus dies on the cross. He raises from the dead. And then the church is starting to birth. The Holy Spirit comes. This is God filling up the believers in the thing called Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. And Peter stands up and he preaches this long sermon. We have a little bit of it captured for you in Acts 2 if you want to read it later. And in that sermon, he says this, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. You hear what Peter is saying is, look, You guys know when you saw all the awesome things Jesus did, you knew something was there. You knew he had to be at least a prophet. You didn't fully understand the whole picture, but you knew nobody could do these things unless God is with him. You knew that much. Then he goes on, verse 20, then I think it's verse 23, but it might be 24. He says, this man, Jesus, he was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to a cross. That sounds like a bad deal, but it wasn't the end of the story. God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Now, yeah, yeah, isn't that awesome? Praise God, okay. I know you're like, can we clap? You can, but I wanna keep going. Okay, so, <laughs> so, so what Peter is building to is this, death couldn't keep him down. The most profound miracle Jesus did was raising from the dead by the power of God. 
Nobody came around and raised him from the dead. He raised himself by the power of God. And that was the ultimate miracle. So what Peter is saying is all these signs and wonders made you look to him, but then we killed him, but then even that couldn't stop him and you ought to pay attention. And 3,000 people gave their lives to Christ and were baptized that day. Now you can clap for God. And do you know why they did that? It's because they had seen the miracles. They had heard the stories. They're like, look, I wasn't there my, the day my, my cousin uh, Jedediah was, was, you know, healed of his blindness, but I've seen Jedediah his whole life. He was blind his whole life. And then I saw him at his last birthday party and he could totally see again. And he said, Jesus did that to me. Jedediah is not really a name in the Bible. I just threw that out there. In case you go Google that later, I, there's no J even in Hebrews or Greek. Okay, so the, <laughs> I don't know. That's my answer. I don't know where it comes from. But Jesus did these things so that you would know who he was. But here's the thing. Even all the signs and the wonders pointed to the fact that he was Messiah. The wonders, the signs, the miracles, they did not erase the need for wrestling. So Jesus sends John's disciples back to John. John the blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk. The poor are served, the dead are raised. I'm the Messiah. But then he says in verse 23, blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. And what he means is, but John, you ain't getting out of there. So John, you're hearing that I've done all these things that testify that I'm the Messiah, but I just want you to know your situation isn't gonna change this side of heaven. And then Jesus says, and blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. In other words, if I had to put this into my own language for a minute, which is dangerous, I don't wanna put words in Jesus' mouth, but I think it's pretty obvious what he's saying. John, don't lose faith because I didn't do what you asked me to do the way you asked me to do it. Ultimately, my kingdom is going to come and my will is going to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Ultimately, I'm going to get done everything that I am supposed to do. But John, you are part of that story. It's just not gonna play out the way you had hoped that it was going to. Now, the word here for does not stumble, the word stumble literally is the Greek word, scandalizo. Do you hear an English word in there? Scandal? So when anytime you're taking an ancient language and you're translating into a modern day language, what you don't wanna do is take the modern day understanding of a word and read it back into the ancient word. What you wanna do is wrestle with what is in the ancient word that made us create our own word. We took the word scandal from the Greek word scandalizo, which means we don't interpret this word through English, we interpret English through this word. I hope that makes sense because I don't have time to go any deeper. But what the word scandalizo literally means is to put a snare in the way, which hence means to cause to stumble. So if you don't know what a snare is, a snare would be like a little trap you might use to say, catch a bunny rabbit that you're gonna eat tonight. And you'd set the little trap and then you'd wait and the bunny would go running through the field, right? And he'd get grabbed and get caught by his leg and then you'd have dinner. And that's the word that Jesus uses here to describe to John 
what's going to happen. By the way, he says this still to John's disciples because what he says next, which I'll show you in a minute, it's after they leave, Jesus has another conversation with everybody else who's left. So he says, the last thing he says is, blesses everybody who doesn't get caught in a trap because of me. In other words, John, even though I don't do what you're asking me to do and the way you're asking me to do it, I need you not to give up. I need you not to lose faith. I need you not to lose sight. I need you not to quit. I need you to hang on anyway. So see, God does signs and wonders and miracles, but sometimes God says, I have another plan, and my answer is no, or not yet, or not in this way. And it's really hard for us when God does this because we're left to struggle with him, to wrestle with him. There's a book in the Old Testament, if you go back here, it's near Isaiah, and it's gonna look like it says Job, but it's pronounced Job. And the book of Job is just a story about a man's life, and he's really wealthy and really blessed. He's a business owner, he's very successful, he has lots of kids, he's a righteous man in every way. Except there's this whole spiritual thing going on, and Job has everything stripped away from him. He loses everything. And uh, he loses his animals, he loses his business, and he loses his children. The only thing he's left with is a wife who's hurting and angry and brutal and bitter. And what happens next is Job's friends come to comfort him. And when they find Job, Job is covered in boils from head to toe. And it says he's sitting among the ashes. But the Hebrew can actually be translated, he's sitting among the dung. Most translators don't want to truly put it into language. Because what we believe is happening is he's taking the pot shards and he's digging at the boils, the painful boils all over his skin. Because it was believed in that day, he needed to get it out and expose it. And then likely he's taking dung and putting it in there as a medicinal purpose. Can you picture a man? who's literally lost everything except for his angry and bitter wife covered in head-to-toe boils, digging at his flesh and putting dung on his body. It doesn't get any worse. And his friends show up, and for seven days, they don't say a word. It was wise. It was good. But then finally, they start speaking. And the things they say are not full of wisdom at all, at all. And by the end of the book, God shows up and rebukes every single one of them, except for one of his friends who does speak truth. But God rebukes all of them and says, you never said anything on my behalf. You didn't seek my face. You just assumed you knew what to say and what to do, and so you just opened your mouths. And at the end of the book, Job ends up making a sacrifice on behalf of his friends to restore them to God, which makes Job such a beautiful picture of Jesus who when hanging on a cross looked at those crucifying him and said, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. And there's so much more. I'm not here to unpack the book of Job. I've done that in the past. It is truly one of my favorite books in the Bible. But it brings up when somebody's going through a difficult, difficult season and you aren't sure what to say, the best thing you can do is say nothing. Because if you aren't sure you're speaking on behalf of God, it is not the time to give your opinion. And we have way too many wise fools in the world today who believe that they know exactly what needs to be said. I'll never forget a friend of mine who's a, a counselor in his ministry um, as a, a man who comes out of same-sex attraction himself, his entire ministry has been to people who struggle with same-sex attraction. And um, this one day a guy came to him covered in sores from the HIV virus. And... Um, 
Yeah, there's a long story here, but I just remember him saying to me, uh, Matt, there's this, this moment where I was about to try to comfort him, and I felt like the Holy Spirit told me, you keep your mouth shut. And he said, I just sat back. As I'm sitting here telling this story, I'm wondering in my mind if I've confused two of his stories together, but I do remember, so I'm sitting here going, ah, maybe I confused two stories. I wanna make sure I tell the story accurately. But I do remember him saying, Matt, there was this moment that I was about to comfort a man and he was struggling big time and he was confessing all these sins to me and right as I was about to come from, the Holy Spirit said, you shut up, you sit back and you shut up. He needs to feel the weight of what he's done. And so I sat back and I let him cry and I let him feel the weight of what he did. I see, that's wisdom. Wisdom, see, the, the world we live in, you just, you just want to just tell everybody, it's going to be okay, it's okay, you're nothing wrong with you, you didn't do anything wrong, but well, sometimes you did, and sometimes you didn't. But if you don't know, if God hasn't clearly spoken to you what, what his word is, just sit silently, sit silently. There's a great book, I don't have it to show you, but I highly recommend it. It's called Where is God When It Hurts by a guy named Philip Yancey. One of the best books I've ever read on this subject. There's a lot of great books on this subject, but it's one of the best I've read. I highly recommend it. If you're struggling with doubt and pain and where is God, where is God when it hurts is a great, great, great book for you. But I wanna show you the last thing and I, wanna, I gotta bring this home for you so I can give you your nugget to go away and wrestle with Jesus now, ready? In the very next verse, Luke 7, 24. After John's messengers left, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? <laughs> no, those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury, they're in palaces. All right, so real quick, Jesus gives two analogies about John. So remember, John's disciples have just left. It said, go tell, go tell John, blessed is anybody who doesn't fall away on behalf of me. Then he turns and he looks at everybody else. And he said, what did you go to see? See, everybody's just heard about John's doubt. They've just heard about John's questions. Are you him or aren't you him? Which is it? I need to know if I'm wasting my life over here. And then Jesus turns to, to comfort everybody else. You need to understand that is not a weak man. He is not a reed blown by the wind. You know, a reed, you picture like a swamp or a lake, right? And the wind blows and the reed might snap and break over. He's like, no, 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 no. Don't worry about John. He'll be all right. His faith, it may be blown, it may be shaken, it won't break. That is not what you went out there to see. Remember, you didn't go out and see a man dressed in fine clothes. What is he saying? The integrity and the character of that man is solid. He wasn't out there gaining power and influence for himself and making you wonder, I hear his words, but it doesn't line up with this message. No, 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 no. You went out there and you saw a dude covered in camel hair. He was eating locusts and honey. You saw a man filled with my spirit and that has not changed. That man in prison now, struggling with doubt, he's still a man of faith. And you could be a man or woman of faith even in your doubts. And then Jesus goes on, verse 26. He says, but what did you go out to see? A prophet? Oh, yeah, yeah. I tell you, more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written. I will send my messenger ahead of you and will prepare your way before you. Will prepare the way before you. So notice the quotations here. This is another Old Testament prophecy of Malachi chapter three, verse one, I believe it is. Hundreds of years before Jesus. And in that book, it is said before the Messiah shows up, there would be a messenger, a prophet who would come and he would say, prepare the way for the Lord. Prepare the way was like, repent, turn to God, get your heart right. Because every great movement of God is preceded by repentance. And that might be a word you need to hear today. If you need a move of God in your life, perhaps repentance is the path to prepare the way for the Lord. But Jesus is saying, don't miss this. What did you go out to see, a prophet? Yes, more than a prophet. 
He's the one that came before me. Verse 28, then he goes on and he says, I tell you, among those born of women, there's no one greater than John. Except for Jesus himself, he is the greatest Old Testament prophet there ever was. Now, some of you have been doing church for a long time. You go, wait, 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 wait. Pastor, this is the book of Luke. That can't be Old Testament. Oh, but it is. It's not Old Testament the way we think of Old Testament. It's Old Testament in the sense of Old Covenant. A new kingdom has come. Jesus is birthing it. It finally happens in his death, burial, and resurrection. We're living in it right now. And of the old order, of the old way of doing things, John was the greatest. Better than Abraham, better than David, better than Elijah. How is that even possible? Oh, because he was the one anointed by God to preach the message that Jesus is here and Jesus was coming. He holds a special place in God's eyes. And that's the point. Even though he's in jail, even though it's going to cost him his head, even though it's going to cost him his life. It's going to be totally worth it because he is the greatest. Praise God for his faithfulness to John the Baptist. He did not waste his life. But more than that, did you see what else he said? Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than him. So everybody who puts their faith in Jesus Christ, death, burial, and resurrection, even though he's the greatest prophet ever to come, you will be better than him. How's that possible? Because John had the Holy Spirit in a very unique way, but he longed to have the Holy Spirit the way you do. When you give your life to Jesus, you make this glorious exchange of your life for his life. And he infuses you, fills you with the power of the Holy Spirit living inside you so that now, I don't even know if you realize the power that is contained inside of you. Paul writes about this. We hold this treasure in jars of clay. There's this amazing, powerful, beautiful thing in us. Even though we're cracked and muddy and dirty like a, like a jar of clay, where there's this power inside us. And Jesus here, saying, John was awesome. You are all more awesome. Do you realize this? What is in you is so great. And here's the thing I want you to get from this. Giving your life to Jesus is a sacrifice that is always worth making. Always. Whatever God is calling you to do right now, I promise you it is worth it. Because he is worth it. Martin Luther said it this way. He said, faith is living, bold trust in God's grace. So certain of God's favor that it would risk death a thousand times trusting in it. Such confidence, knowledge of God's grace make you happy, joyful, and bold in your relationship to God and all creatures. Now, here's what I wanna do. Um, I don't know where this message lands for you. So if you need to have a conversation with somebody about receiving Jesus as your Lord and Savior, that you could become greatest. When we're done here, I just want you to go to our Connect Hub and say, hey, I, I need Jesus. What's next? If you're in this place and you're maybe going through a doubting season, a hard season, you wanna talk to somebody, again, go by our Connect Hub. Find one of our staff members after the, after the service. We'll be out there in the foyer. Just grab us, say, I need to talk to somebody. We'll make an appointment. We'll figure it out. But don't just go home and go back to life as it was. And I want to see you flourish and thrive in your faith in Jesus. So what we're going to do right now is we're going to pray and 
sing. We're gonna sing that, that God is good and that we really can trust him, even in our doubts, even in our questions, that what God is doing in us is good. Would you do me a favor? Would you just stand? And we're, I'm gonna pray and then we're just gonna sing. Oh God. Help us in our unbelief, Father. Anywhere we're struggling to trust you like John in prison. Help us to believe because we really believe you did die and we really believe you did raise from the dead. And that really was a fulfillment of hundreds and hundreds of prophecies over thousands of years. So God, I, I know that none of us today were there to witness it. But there were thousands who went before us who died testifying that they did see and they did believe and they were willing to be killed alongside of you to testify to that truth. So God, we stand here today thousands of years later believing because of that testimony. We don't have a video, we don't have a picture. We just have a written testimony by multiple, multiple, multiple people. And so God, we believe. And you say, God, that those who are fully trained will be like you in this world. So God, would you fully train us? Teach us your will and your ways. But God, not so we could see miracles or signs or wonders, but God, so that we can participate with you in what you're trying to do to save and redeem and to change this world. So God, transform us into the likeness of your son that we might be more gracious, more merciful, more patient, more generous, more kind, more faithful, more loving more self-controlled. And God, would you just do something in us that we literally cannot do on our own? In any way that we're doubting to believe in you, God, would you come right now and help us in our unbelief? We love you and praise you. In Jesus' name we pray.